0: All right, let's get started, because uh, we're settling into one of my favorite uh, months of the year, one of my favorite seasons here. Um, if, if you've been part of Open Church for a while now, you know, you know this month, you've been through this cycle a few times. Every year uh, for November, we take four weeks to celebrate um, All Saints Day. It's kind of cool this year, because today is actually All Saints Day. Um, November 1st it, it, on the church calendar is All Saints Day. Throughout church history, um, the church has used November 1st as a day to celebrate those who have come before us. Uh, some parts of the church still celebrate All Saints Day pretty, uh, pretty heavily, or what they call All Hallows' Day, um, as it was originally called on November 1st. And we're more familiar with All Hallows' Eve, um, which is Halloween, which is where it actually got that name. Um, but here at Open Table, we like to really dig into All Saints Day by spending four weeks studying four different believers um, who lived before us and, uh, and really look at the impact they had on this life of faith that we live in now. Um, but I do feel like I would need to unpack uh, just a little bit before we dive into this week's saint because the concept of saints um, spooks some of us, especially as Protestants. You know, we have a tendency to, to think when we hear the word saint, especially used in the context of honoring dead people, um, as as something that the church has done, you know, with statues and and kind of an abuse, um, maybe taking it too far. Um, So we do what, you know, I know there's going to be shocking that the church can do this, but we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, you know, we have a tendency to do that sometimes. And uh, uh, because a few people in the wider church uh, might take honoring those uh, from the past too far, we have a tendency to spend no time looking back at those who really were amazing Jesus followers. Um, so before we dive into today's kind of root passage, let's first look at this word saint, um, because oftentimes this is where the confusion comes from. When we say saint, especially in the context of this series, we're just using the, Paul, the word that Paul used over and over and over again. A couple of examples. In Romans, Paul said, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from the Lord. Our God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. Corinthians, he wrote, To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ called saints. From Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is in Ephesians, Paul, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are in Ephesus. In Philippians, he wrote, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints of Jesus Christ in Philippi. To Colossae, he wrote, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to Timoth- and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful who are in Colossae. So this is just the word Paul used for Believers. If you've ever read one of these books and you felt like God was speaking to you out of this book, then you're a saint because Paul said this was written to the saints. And so um, if you read these books as the word of God, then that makes you a saint. So, um, so when we say saint, we aren't worshiping these people. We're not ven- venerating them or putting them on any kind of a pedestal. Um, we're just doing what the book of Hebrews does in chapter 11. If you want to read the whole chapter, it's a great chapter to read. Um, but here's how that author of Hebrews starts that chapter. He says, through faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And then he just kind of rattles through name after name after name. By, by faith, this person did that. By faith, this person did that. By faith, this person did that. And it's He it just kind of gives this amazing list um, of all these people who had gone before. Most of these people were long, long dead when the writer of Hebrews wrote about them. And then in chapter 12, the author writes today's passage, which goes like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sins that so easily trip us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in a place of honor. Beside God's throne. So we've titled this series "Surrounded" um, from this passage, because uh, I really love that phrase. Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses of this life of faith, I love the idea that all these people, all these previous Jesus followers, are like surrounding us and cheering us on in this life of faith. It's a, it's a cool thing to think about, hoping and 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 desiring for us to follow Jesus well. So as we study the saints of old, this passage is what we have in mind. We want to run our race well, stripping off everything that weighs us down, especially the sins that trip us up. And the way we do this is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And the way we keep our eyes on Jesus is by recognizing that we're never alone in this journey of keeping our eyes on Jesus. We are surrounded by a massive crowd of both trailblazers who have gone before us and our church community who goes with us. And so this is what we have in mind when we look at saints is, is exactly what the book of Hebrews does. So please don't get tripped up on the word saint as we use it. Most of the people we study have never been venerated by anyone in the church um, as some official saint. These are just people who were just like you and me, and who struggled to figure out the life of faith and usually um, did it well, people who we can learn from. So this week's saint is someone not a lot of us have heard of, Juan de Zumaraga. Anybody ever heard of this guy? Awesome. Wanda Zumaraga. Juan was the very first bishop and ultimately archbishop of Mexico. And before we get deeply into his life, I have uh, to apologize um, right off the bat. If you're the type family who likes to go home and, and, and maybe eat a little something and have your kids take a nap, might be tough today because the kids are going to enjoy a hot chocolate bar in the midst of their uh, kids' service in celebration of Zumarraga. While serving in Mexico, some of the nuns that he served with found some of the native people who were grinding cocoa beans and mixing it with a copious amount of sugar into hot water. And, um, and they introduced it to Zumaraga, who absolutely loved it, which I think accounts for the only two pictures I could find for Zumaraga. I'm assuming one was before they found hot chocolate and the other <laughs> was, was after. Um, but incidentally, when he returned to Spain... Uh, Zumarraga took the, a lot of supplies for making hot chocolate with him, and he introduced hot chocolate to the Spanish court and ultimately all of Europe. It became a huge drink all over all of Europe, and we have Zumarraga to thank for that. He's the one who introduced it, um, to white people. Um, and so, Juan de Zumarraga was born in, uh, Tavia de Durango in Spain, um, in 1468. And at a fairly young age, uh, he joined the Franciscan Order of Monks, which was common back then. If you weren't a firstborn son, the firstborn son got to inherit everything. And so the secondborn son um, didn't have very many prospects. So a lot of times they become monks and things. And so uh, he served in Concepcion as a provincial minister, which basically means he ran the monastery. Uh, And as far as all accounts indicate, um, he had no political ambitions whatsoever. In the early 1500s, the church was not immune to people joining the ministry for the political clout that it brought um, and so that they could advance politically. But Zumarraga seems to have just been a faithful monk who rose to the top of his abbey just by being faithful and for the most part had no intentions of aspiring further. Until 1527, where in kind of a surprise move. Uh, Juan de Zumaraga was named Bishop-elect of Mexico by Charles V., who was the king of Spain, the Holy Roman Emperor, as well as about a thousand other titles at the time. Um, And before we think of this as like a rags to riches, this nobody monk becomes kind of a big thing. um, Please know that uh, first bishop elect is meaningless. It's kind of an empty title. It means that some monarch has declared you a bishop, but the church hasn't ratified it yet. So you really don't carry any church authority as bishop elect um, at all. You have no authority in your corner. Also, in 1527, um, the first uh, uh, Spanish colony um, was was uh, established eight years earlier. So, at this point, Mexico is still basically a camping trip. Like it's not there's nothing huge uh, going on yet. Um, or at least that's what everybody assumes. Uh, so, what's really happening here is Umaraga is becoming kind of a make believe bishop of a 10 minute old colony. Like it's a big title, but but uh, not one that anyone would have really aspired to. Not very glorious. But Zumarraga is honored um, to have this opportunity. And he arrives in Mexico in December of 1528. And when he gets there, he finds out that the Franciscan and Dominican orders of you know, the Catholic Church, their missionaries, had not only been really, really busy, but had had great success with the natives. Um, being missionaries, you know, they were very um, interested in and getting people baptized into the church, but not very uh, organizationally gifted. And so it's just kind of this huge, scattered, um, highly unorganized, organized, theologically diverse group of converts. And it's Zumaraga's job to kind of turn them into a real church diocese, you know, with all the structure and organization. And, of course, he has exactly zero years of experience at running a church diocese. He, all he had run is his one little abbey. He's completely inexperienced. He's thrown straight into the deep end of the pool, having no idea if he could even swim. But the good news is Spain like, sent um, a handful, two or three, like really experienced judges and magistrates and commissioners with him, like, the guys who had real experience running things. Uh, and so they went with him to help. Bad news is they all, literally all died two weeks after arriving from something they most likely caught on the ship. Um, so Zumarraga hits Mexico alone and inexperienced. And not only that, uh, but um, Spain had received some reports of Cortez's horrible treatment of the native people uh, in what they called New Spain at the time. Um, And this is partly why they sent Zumarraga and his team to Mexico. In fact, uh, along with being bishop-elect, which was meaningless, Zumarraga bore the civil title of protector of the Indians. Of course, they called them Indians because they thought they were in India. They were a ways off. But, um, but they called him Indian, so he bore the title Protector of the Indians, which was a civil title. Um, and that turned out to be really difficult uh, because the Spanish government gave him no guidelines, no real papers, nothing um, outlining what his exact authority might be from a civil perspective. So he's got a meaningless title from the church side, a meaningless title from the civil side. Um, because nobody knew, neither him nor anybody in New Spain had any idea what kind of authority he carried. So he's walking in, um, really a toothless protector of the Indians. And to make it worse, when word got out that he came as protector of the Indians, um, appeals started to just absolutely pour in. From all over New Spain, reports of abuse and requests for respite um, found their way to Zumaraga, um, who was called on to do a job that he was neither trained for nor equipped for. He had no power, no resources, no fame, no reputation. So left with no other options, Zumaraga started to preach. And he focused on preaching about virtue. He preached about love and kindness and compassion and mercy. And his voice had exactly zero effect on anything going on. Um, it seemed like his tormentors were completely unfazed. Um, the, the people tormenting the Indians were completely unfazed. Um, but he continued to preach, continued to preach virtue. And there began to be like a, a kind of a groundswell uh, amongst ordinary people who were hearing Zumarraga's message. The common people were being changed by this new message of goodness. And before long, a, uh, a merchant who was returning to Spain um, came to Zumaraga and offered to sneak um, a, a letter, a report back to Spain. Up to this point, every time he had tried to communicate with Spain, the censors would intercept it and destroy his letter. So he had had no contact with Spain. And some merchant who had heard Zumaraga preach, loved his message, loved his heart, came up and offered, uh, even though he was risking his own life in doing it, came up and offered to carry a message. So Zumaraga wrote a lengthy report. They uh, put it in melted wax so that the letter was floating in a block of wax. They put the big block of wax in a cask of wine where it, couldn't, where it wouldn't be found, and they shipped it back to Spain. And when he got there... He opened the casket, got out the big block of wax, melted Zumaranga's letter out, and, uh, and gave it to the Spanish court. Uh, so, interestingly enough, um, in this time, Zumaranga was so frustrated, he excommunicated all of Mexico City. <laughs> like, he was like, you guys are all rotten and gross. You're all out of the church. The whole city is out of the church. And so it was this, it was this act of excommunicating an entire city, that uh, got Spain's attention, and they wanted some explanation. So they called for Zumarraga to come home, and they sent ships to pick up Zumarraga, bring him home. And in 1533, um, while in Spain, uh, Zumarraga had to testify um, on behalf of what he had done in Mexico, and he found himself in a room full of accusers, people who had uh, financial um, interest in Mexico, and his simple... Uh, defense of his character and, and what he had done, along with a few plants, uh, political plants that Spain had in, in in Mexico that nobody knew about, came back and testified on Zumarraga's behalf, and uh, and Zumarraga was uh, declared innocent, and all of his accusers were arrested, except for a couple that um, actually escaped. But so in 1533, um, in Spain, Juan Zumarraga was not only um, the first like a real hot chocolate dealer. Um, he was uh, officially declared bishop of Mexico with the full weight and authority of the church behind him um, and protector of the natives with the full weight and authority of the Spanish government behind him. So when he rolls back into Mexico to take his position as bishop of the church, um, it was with real authority. And at this point, they say there was probably a couple million converts to, to the church in Mexico already. By the end of Zumarraga's life, the church in Mexico numbered about 5 million. So we're talking like they had really, um, and some of this is a little shady because they were, there, there's accounts of them like spraying people with water. Okay, you're all baptized now. Like some of this, the numbers are a little skewed, I'm sure, but, um, but the church was exploding for sure. And once Zumarraga does establish peace in New Spain, um, he went to work advancing the cause. Of the native people, um, he established schools and universities and a seminary. Um, he opened the very first uh, girls' school in the Western Hemisphere. There weren't even that many in Europe at this point. But he, uh, when he came back, he brought um, a group of nuns with him because he recognized these girls need an education. And so he brought, he opened a girls' school um, for the girls. He um, opened schools for uh, everybody, even up to a university and a seminary. Um, he brought with him. Um, a printing press. He was so frustrated by his inability to get a letter to Spain that the very first thing he wanted to do was start a newspaper, a way to get good information out. So he bought a, brought a printing press. He started the first uh, newspaper in the Western Hemisphere. He wrote the very first book on this side of the Atlantic. It was a book about witches, um, which is kind of funny. In his opinion, witches were uh, seemed to be uh, women who had mental issues, especially hallucinations. Um, it's kind of, a, kind of funny. I read a little bit of it. But... Um, He built hospitals and shipped in the best medical professionals or whatever passed for that in the 1500s. Um, They were probably, you know, just people with leeches. Um, But uh, he brought the best mechanics um, uh, and and opened factories um, from Europe. He brought the best agricultural tools. Uh, By 1547, um, he was raised to Archbishop, of Mexico because there were so many people that needed extra bishops. So he's Archbishop of Mexico. And by the time he died, not only was Mexico completely unrecognizable from when he first arrived, um, but it was hard to find a single thing in Mexico that he had not had a hand um, in developing or creating. Uh, And because he used his personal funds to help the natives and a lot of loans To advance his uh, big projects, he died completely penniless and deeply, deeply in debt. Um, And incidentally, historians and archaeologists hate Wanda Zumarraga. He's actually a bad guy because he was responsible for the destruction of hundreds and hundreds of ancient pagan temples and shrines, um, which apparently makes it more difficult to study ancient cultures when all their temples and shrines are destroyed. Archaeologists apparently want us to have pagan worship sites. How weird is that? But uh, so they don't like him. He's like a bad guy in the in the kind of uh, historical side. And the reason I want to learn about Juan Zumarraga this year in our Saint series is twofold. First, he's like an amazingly accomplished Christian leader um, who we don't talk about much, which is a shame. But the second reason I want to cover him is because Zumarraga shows. Me, just how much an underqualified person can a- can accomplish, even out in the boonies. Uh, let me explain. There's a very good and logical reason why Zumarraga was sent to be bishop of New Spain, um, even though he was wildly un- unqualified and ill-equipped. Um, he was named bishop uh, of Mexico in 1527. Anybody know what else was going on in Europe in 1527? Exactly 10 years before that, Luther nails his 95 thesis to the post at Wittenberg Cathedral. Europe was in the grips of this tectonic shift in thought and worship known as the Reformation, which would lead to the church fighting with itself. And when I say fighting, I mean like, fight, not like we know of church fighting, where like, should a church have an electric guitar? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my hymns and go home. Like, Not that kind of fighting. I'm talking killing each other, real war, real bloodshed fighting. Um, For like 200 years, the church fought itself and literally killed each other. During this time, the Holy Roman Empire was dominated uh, or or dominated Europe um, for 1,200 years. And they were in their death throes. This is when the, the European nation states were first really beginning to form, find their own monarchies. This is, this is kind of a major, major movement. In other words, Europe had much bigger problems than trying to figure out what to do with this colony 9,000 miles away. They were not thinking about New Spain. They're trying to hold on to power in Europe. So they send this underqualified person because that was all they could spare. Anybody with any qualifications was really busy in Europe, had way more important things to do. The real drama was in Europe. All the qualified people were needed. I mean, all of us learned about the Reformation in school. All of us learned about Luther. We learned about Henry VIII. You know, we learned about, you cannot study world history without studying the Reformation. But how many of us study de Zumaraga in history class? None of it. Because this is the boondocks. This is a nowhere-nothing going on while really the, mo- the biggest thing in the world is happening in Europe. Zumarraga was sent to Mexico because someone had to be there, and everyone who was qualified had much bigger fish to fry. So Pastor Juan goes, and when he gets to this kind of podunk town in the middle of nowhere, literally nowhere, he's got a choice. Zumarraga can go, what am I going to do way out here? Like the real dramas in Europe, no one cares what's happening here. Or he can say, God has called me here. Right here, to these people. I might, I might not be qualified to cause real change. I might not have any experience at making a real and lasting difference in the world. But I'm the one that God put here. So I, I'm going to give it my all. He's got a choice. And that is what Zumaraga did. He said, I am pouring myself into this. And he came by that urge, honestly. Years before Zumuraga's story, another iteration of this long tale of Rome was going through major change. Rome was painfully transitioning from a republic, the cornerstone of democracy, to an empire ruled by a single man, often a tyrant. And this was not an easy or a peaceful shift. The Roman Republic had stood for 500 years as the shining light of democracy by the people. And now, all of Europe, a big chunk of Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, in other words, the entire Roman Empire, is indescribably affected by this cataclysmic political shift. This is easily easily the biggest thing going on on the planet. Julius Caesar, great Roman general, had come back to Rome with so much power that the Roman Senate couldn't control him. And so they killed him. And then they... They figured that would fix the problem, but they realized they'd actually lost a real problem years before. And so it sets off a huge civil war, a bloody civil war in Rome. And before long, Octavian, who was renamed Augustus Caesar, takes the throne as the very first Roman emperor. One man ruling the entire country that used to be a democracy. And he ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D guess what else was going on while Augustus was securing his throne, removing Roman democracy, and grasping his empire? Way, way back in the backwoods, down in the utterly inconsequential region of Judea, was a tiny, don't blink or you'll miss it, town called Bethlehem. And there was unlikely a single person in the entire city of Rome who had ever heard of Bethlehem. In Rome... Israel was a podunk nowhere. And in Israel they made fun of Bethlehem as a podunk nowhere. So this is like not even the podunk nowhere thinks well of Bethlehem. Nobody in Rome where everything is happening has heard of Bethlehem. It's hard to describe just how meaningless this little town would have been compared to everything going on in Rome. But in that little town while Augustus was reigning as the first emperor of Rome, a baby is being born. And we know this story. And not long later, the entire nation kind of held its collective breath as the empire was being passed from Augustus to his heir. Because anytime you have a, an empire that was taken by violence, the next shift of power is always questionable. You have no idea what's going to happen. Is it going to be taken by violence again? Is it going you know, to be bloody? Are people going to die again? So while all of Rome is holding its breath to see if Tiberius Caesar is going to be able to hold on to all this power that was handed him, a tiny group of desperately unqualified people started a movement of people that love and follow Jesus. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were, they were ultimately failures. In Israel, every child went to synagogue. And the, the best and the brightest were in, were invited to continue their education while everyone else was sent home to work in the family business. And at that next level, they were expected to memorize huge chunks of the Torah and commit it to memory, and the best and the brightest were invited to continue, and the rest were sent home to work in the family business. And finally, at this level, the hopes were a rabbi would come by and take you on as his disciple. The way this was done is the rabbi would touch him on the shoulder and go, Follow me. And and that student would be invited to follow the rabbi. And those who didn't get chosen, those who didn't get picked by a rabbi, were sent home to work the family business. Every child's dream in Israel at the time was to be a disciple of a rabbi. And then you could grow to be a rabbi. The fact that Jesus' followers were fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary people means that they were failed students. They didn't make the cut. No one chose them. They were nobodies. They had no money, no power, no fame. And they were in way over their heads. But they were so far outside the real action of the kingdom that they had literally zero chance of ever making the tiniest blip on history. And now, 2,000 years later, we hang on these guys every word. So Azumaraga sits in Mexico, 9,000 miles away from the real meaningful action, reading his Bible. He reads about early disciples, badly unqualified, under-resourced, and stuck out in the boonies of the Roman Empire. Way too far from the core to institute any real change. And he reads about how faithful they were. How they cared for people right in front of them. How they fed widows and orphans right there in their little podunk town. And they studied and prayed and spent time together and slowly felt themselves grow more and more into these roles God had called them to. He read as this first group of misfits turned the world upside down. If Zuma teaches us anything, it's this. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. I know this is an old cliche. It's absolutely not original to me. But all through the Scripture, we read about people who were actually shocked when God called them because they were so unqualified. Gideon has this argument with an angel. The angel comes and says, Gideon, mighty man of God. Gideon goes, wait a minute. Israel is the weakest country in the world right now. My tribe is the weakest tribe in Israel. My family is the weakest family in my tribe, and I'm weaker than all my brothers. I'm arguably the weakest person on the planet right now. And he was called to be a military hero. Moses argued that he could barely speak, and God called him to voice the very Torah that would ring out for all of eternity. Queen Esther argued that she was just a girl in the king's harem, powerless to even enter his presence without an invitation. How could she save Israel? David was a child when he was called to be king, so inconsequential that his own father overlooked him when when, when asked to present all of his sons. Jeremiah was a child, frankly, terrified when he was called to speak for God to an entire nation. The disciples were failed and unwanted students. And that's just barely the tip of the iceberg. The scriptures are full of people who prove this reality. God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. And maybe you feel like these are just Bible studies or Bible stories, right? All kinds of crazy things happen in the Bible anyway. I mean, really, we don't see much of that. So this is just Bible stories. Of course this kind of thing happens. Zumarraga would argue otherwise. The Bishop of Mexico took the story of the disciples seriously. And he trusted that God had called him to this position and God would equip him to do it well. So how do we respond to this? I, uh, I framed houses for years. And believe it or not, they're all still standing um, when my best friend uh, asked me if I would run a framing crew for him, I was doing floor coverings at the time and didn't really have much desire to learn something new. But working with Chad sounded fun, and so I, I took the job. And, uh, and I had done no framing at this point. So Chad hires this really good framer um, who kind of had his own company to do one house with us and to teach us how to frame houses in one house. Show me the ropes. I knew nothing about it, and since this was before the Internet or YouTube... Uh, I went to the bookstore and bought books about framing houses, like four of these huge monster books, like a step-by-step on how to frame a house. And uh, and I worked all day framing, and then I would come home and study my books and read. And I my, took my books to our crew leader so he could circle the stuff that was really important and, and like, yeah, hey, we don't do this around here. Like, nobody does this. So that I would n- be able to hone in on what I needed to be studying. And before we knew it, that first house was done. He went back to work where he was for his company, and I was placed on Chad's full crew as the new crew leader. And uh, they all came up to me like, what do you want us to do, boss? <laughs> A lot of these guys have been framing for like over 20 years. But I was they were told I was the crew leader, so they all showed up for orders. And I started telling people what to do. And what was funny was I didn't even know the language other than what the book said. And it sounded like gibberish, and so I was really hoping the words were right. So I was like let's put on the sill plate and the rim board and they start moving i was like okay those are the right words i've never heard those words before but those are apparently the right words i started spending more and more time studying at night and oftentimes i would i would only be able to have time to study what we were going to do the next day and so if it hit like two o'clock and they we were out of things that i knew i'd say hey guys we say we wrap up early today like it's a good day we did good let's head home Cause that's all I knew, and I'd go home. Man, I got to study a bigger chunk because that only took us till two. Funny part is the guy who taught me to frame, like when he was teaching me rafters and stairs, he was like, like we were like, we went down to the basement where it was like quiet, and he was like, "This is the really important part because it does take a little bit of math, and everybody thinks it's like magic." And if you tell the ordinary framer how to do this, he will be a crew leader. So this is like protected knowledge. Make sure no one sees you do this because you do not want them to learn this piece. Because this is the only thing that makes you a crew leader. I was like, awesome. I've got something. And so we hit the point in the first job when like people were starting to figure out, I don't think this guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> like and then it was time to put in our first set of stairs. And so I'm out in the you know, I'm out in the 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 yard of this house, you know, doing like wizardry, you know, like they don't know what I'm doing, but I've got all this, you know, stuff. in And I walk in with this set of this set of stringers that I just put together, and boom, they drop right in, just like they were supposed to. And everybody was like, no, he's good, he's good, he's a crew leader. <laughs> you see what he just did? He did all that magic that crew leaders do. All smoke and mirrors, man, the whole thing was smoke and mirrors. So I wasn't kidding when I said it's, it's a little bit amazing that all those houses are still standing but before long, I was building huge, complicated, cut-up, twisted, fancy houses in South Oakland Park, and I was able to oversee and direct every aspect of the business. But the fear and insecurity and the frenetic pace of learning that dominated my first year of framing makes me feel like Zumaraga was a rock star. Like I can't even imagine overseeing and organizing Mexico's new family of faith into a Catholic diocese. While at the same time trying to protect the native people and advance this new colony, um, I can't even I can't even imagine it. As much as my first year of framing took a, like taxed me, can't even dream of how amazing Zumaraga is. And honestly, for the first couple of years of Zumaraga's of his service, the plight of the native people didn't get any better. They continued to suffer and Zumaraga suffered right along with him. But he knew he had no control over that part. He did what he could do right then and there to make a difference. And it's the exact same for us. Moms, have you ever felt like you were in way over your head? Like maybe God had completely screwed up in giving you these children. Like you were just not qualified to raise kids. Let Zumaraga be your patron saint. You're the one God called to this job. And God will qualify you to do it well. And you may need to ask for help. Zumaraga had to ask for help. But you're the one God called. And there is no one better for that job. Maybe it's finances for you. You're, how are you supposed to cover everything? There's never quite enough money. You try to be wise. You try to do the smart thing, but you just can't get ahead. Zumaraga would say, do what you can do today. God will be there when you need him. And if you're younger today, it's probably all of life. You're supposed to be smart and healthy and have a social media presence full of fresh content. You're supposed to be environmentally conscious, socially engaged. You're supposed to eat right, exercise right, raise your kids right, and your house needs to be Instagram ready at all times because everybody else that posts about their house looks like they just spent four years on Pinterest. There's so much pressure. Why does everybody else seem to have it together and you can't keep up? Zumaraga would tell you you can't do it all, but you can do what you can do today well. Pour your heart into it. In a few years, you find you were able to do more than anyone ever dreamed possible. But the main reason Zoomeraga speaks to me this year is because at Open Table Community Church, we're kind of tucked away in in Wellsville, Kansas, while the wider world is falling apart right now. There are problems in our world that has our entire planet kind of holding its collective consciousness in 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 a few items. And we can be t- tempted to go, what difference can I make? What difference can we make way out here in the outskirt town? What impact could we have on the kingdom of God? And I feel like Zumaraga would laugh at that question. And I believe he would tell us that the answers aren't out there where there's real exposure, where there's there's more impact. The answers aren't in celebrity and money and power. The real impact is right here. We make a difference when we love our own people well. When we raise our kids to love and to feel loved and to understand the value of working hard to do good. When we shine like a light in the community and we care more about being a blessing to those around us than we do about our own comfort and safety. When we make a difference, when we want to make a difference When the church wants to make a difference, the whole church wants to make a difference. And we care more about being good for the community than using the community to grow a bigger church. What happens when we put a room full of highly unqualified misfits in a podunk town, mostly in the middle of nowhere, who are absolutely hell-bent on doing some serious good for the kingdom of God because they love Jesus? I hope Zumaraga... And every other unqualified ragamuffin world changer in history answers that question for us. Let's go to the table.